Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. So Riley, here we go again. We have another episode. We are talking about peace. This has been interesting conversation that has been a long time coming. I mean, this is kind of a peace studies podcast, and so it's about time we study about peace. And we've been talking a little bit beforehand recording and you know, going over some general themes. And you know, a couple of those deal with how Jesus Christ has these obvious commandments that seem contradictory where he comes and he says that he's going to bring a, he's not going to come to bring peace, but a sword. But then later on, he talks about the, a peace that he leaves. That's not as the world gives, but a different kind of peace. And so I'm excited to get into those themes and uh, also talk a little about, about what we were talking about with the Nephite narrative and about how some of these themes play out with peace and of the kingdom of God and how that transpires in the book of Mormon text. But yeah, I'm interested to see what you have to say about it. Well, we talk a lot about peace, you and I, and in the peace studies groups and some of the other groups that we're in. Um, I, I, I'm kind of excited to explore the the concept deeper. And, um, there's so many different meanings for the word peace. It can it can play into world civil affairs, you know, peace between nations and war and all that stuff. And then there's the relationships and how you maintain and build peaceful relationships with friends, family, through patience, long suffering, that kind of stuff. And then there's the individual and how we how we can experience peace, peace of mind, sense of calm, patience, um, and the alleviation of some psychological maladies through different practices that we've talked about before. So I think there's many ways to approach the idea of peace. And I'm excited to kind of go down this rabbit hole a little bit for the next hour, hour and a half. Absolutely, because peace is really an interesting word, because as you said, it really does denote so many different types of discussions. Um, I liked how you differentiated there between like world and civil affairs, relationships and interstate of peace. You know, those seem completely unrelated at times, but come to find out, I think they're more connected than we really give credit for. Well, here, here's what I think, you know. You say they're all related, and I completely agree with this. And I'd like to arrive at not necessarily an overarching definition, but at least some kind of like etymological source for our idea about what peace is, what its very essence is. And then from there, kind of build out on how do we integrate this idea of peace in various contexts, whether it's individual, family, community, and even the larger context of world. And so I think we can begin maybe even right at the beginning. I mean, with Adam and Eve, you know, uh, we've talked in the past uh, episodes about how, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden, everything is there's a sense of unity, of unification with God and his creations and the divine and everything is one. And there's no judgments about anything. Everything is experienced in the moment that they're in because there is no movement of time, no passage of time. Right. It's an immortal realm. And so uh, they had a they had a peace in the garden. It was a garden of peace, 
And not just because they were living with God and walking side by side, but also because everything is what it is. And so this starts to hearken over to a lot of other traditions worldwide. And, and this is where we get a lot of overlap. And, you know, fans of, of Jordan Peterson or Joseph Campbell will see, you know, a lot of a lot of that in what those guys talk about with myth narratives and and how they all sort of connect. And the older they are, kind of the more they connect together, the more um, you can say true they are. And, uh, you know, our creation narrative is very old. And so is the, you know, the Buddhist creation narrative and, you know, the Hindu creation narrative and so forth. And uh, there's, there's certain things that a lot of them have in common. And in ours, it's just this sense of beingness. So that, that first existence with Adam and Eve is one where they just are. And uh, they don't have to, again, worry about judging things as good or evil. Um, there's no contention or strife. I think uh, the most active word that is used and will be recognizable by Latter-day Saints is enmity, because that's something that's introduced after the fall, after they partake of the fruit. And so I think you can contrast their state of being in the garden with their state after partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was enmity. And that might be a good starting point. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I like that a lot. It's really starting with the very beginning narrative and to see how that unfold. And I like what you said about myth there. And we haven't really talked about that a whole lot. And I know there's a lot of baggage that goes along and a lot of misunderstanding when you use the word myth. Uh, I've noticed over the years, it's such a powerful word and the idea that goes behind it, but it's also a very misunderstood word as far as the the general population and the general use of it. Because we typically use the word myth to talk about a fable or some kind of story that's not true. You know, it's like Mythbusters, right. that old TV show. They were trying to find the false fables that were in society and test them out and find out what would you, what was myth or falsehoods and what was not. And that's true and kind of the common usage of the word is a myth as a false story or as a, a false narrative. But in its more formal use as more of a, like a scholarly or an academic or as an interpretive uh, evaluation from historians or from people who do comparative literature, that's not what a myth is. And so to understand myth is, is a really powerful tool to understanding the scriptures not as a false or a, a narrative or as a story that didn't happen, but what myth really is, is it, it's, a, it's almost like a fable. So it's a story that has a moral purpose and not just a moral purpose because it, you can have all of these stories that have moral purposes like a fable, like Aesop's fables and what have you. But a myth is a story that has a moral ending upon which you pull moral identity from. It actually affects your identity. It's something that you have attributed to yourself mm -hmm. or that you find yourself involved with in a larger story. So, for instance, myth can be a completely true. It can be a completely true story, but in the way that you tell it, you tell this, that completely true story as having a moral ending and that you gain identity from. Yeah, the point of the story is not to convey, you know, the, uh, the plot the point of the story is to teach the, the moral lesson, and then people will adopt their identity as a result of that. And, you know, in Mircea Eliade's Myth of the Eternal Return, he talks about um, 
why it is we tell the same stories or myths over and over and over and over and over. It's because they connect to that return to cosmogony, the, the return to the creation, the ultimate creation story. That's something that every culture is interested in. And so every tradition has their, their myth narrative built around the cosmogony, the, the creation. That's right. And another author you mentioned, Joseph Campbell, wrote several books on myth. And he's the one who really coined the term the hero's journey because he recognized the same thing in that throughout every culture, you know, even the ones that are distinct and separate and that we have no evidence that were they were ever connected to any other outside influence. We all have these same origin stories that usually, as you said, they start with the with the creation of the world, as it were. And they all have the same basic plots. And it's been a fast, it's a fascinating literary uh, recognition to realize that people completely detached in completely broken off parts of the world that have no other contact with the rest of the world, their stories about how they gain identity and about how they, and about how they, they write their, their literature all follow the same basic patterns and plot lines. And so Joseph Campbell, he wrote, you know, the hero's journey, which documents about how, you know, Hercules had gone through this journey and George Lucas actually specifically used Joseph Campbell's hero's journey to be able to talk about the star Wars theme. So the star Wars theme is nothing but the hero's journey. Um, In fact, how we as church members view and talk about Joseph Smith is exactly in the hero's journey. Um, it, it, Joseph Campbell, in fact, line for line, word for word, I was a, this crazy recognition I had one day to realize that the most prominent stories we tell of Joseph Smith, the ones that are in all of our manuals, the ones that we're all familiar with, these are the key transition points of the hero's journey that Campbell points out until finally, I mean, we, we become so blatant and obvious with our hero's journey and the heroization of Joseph Smith that we literally sing a hymn. In church, where we say death cannot conquer the hero again. I mean, it's it's so embedded in our humanity, and it's not a manipulation tool. It's not that we're trying to create narratives and stories of manipulation to create identities and to form them to institutions, like a lot of people think. This is just a natural expression about how the human being creates and puts forward story. No, this is this is how we categorize and remember things. Again, back to Iliadi, the stories that have been around for longest are the ones that conform to our pre-established recognized patterns of the hero's journey or the cosmogony. And so when they fit into what our it's built into our biology. I mean, it's, it's deep. And because it's so old, those stories that fit into that biological construct that we've become so ingrained, that has become so ingrained in us are the ones that stick around. And if, if, the, the older the story is, the more you can guarantee that either the story was a perfect uh, fit for that um, pattern or we've made the story conform to the pattern so that it's more easily remembered. And so, again, you point out that there's these, these uh, touch points in Joseph Smith's life that we tend to remember. And, you know, I've broken personally myself like a dozen bones. I'm, I'm kind of an adventure junkie and I do stupid things and I break bones. Um, I, those aren't like <laughs> these amazing experiences in my life that are a big part of my journal and a big part of my story. It's just a broken bone. But we've got this story about Joseph and his leg and the infection and getting, you know, a piece of his leg cut open and, and how that is like this 
you know, it, it marks his, his character and his strength. And it's like the beginning of him becoming a hero. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, exactly. Just yeah. All these stories kind of like that within the life of Joseph Smith that we've pulled out of his life and we make the center point of, of some transition. It's, it's a moment of transition where he starts to realize who he is as the hero. And so this is, this is a good example of, of, uh, the hero's journey in, LDS culture, but they're all throughout cultures, you know, in, in the whole world. And, and even when you take a, a secular individual like a, like a Newton, for instance, right. And dropping the apple and, you know, the gravity and <laughs> right. Or ha- having it hit him on the head or whatever under the apple tree or Galileo dropping, you know, two thing, two items from the tower of Pisa or whatever. <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> who. But you know what I'm saying? Like these are, yeah. These are kind of like these these myths or, or George Washington chopping down the, the cherry tree. I was just going to talk about that. Yeah, that's a great one. You know, and these are all just kind of these myths. And I, I read a biography of Abraham Lincoln years and years ago. And, um, you know, the whole growing up in a cabin in, in Kentucky and Illinois and, you know, his rise to fame, it's very much a hero's journey. And so we've, we've got this statue of Lincoln at the Lincoln monument or whatever it's called. And on the top of it, you remember what it, what it says there, there's an inscription behind him and it actually mentions, it says in this temple. Yeah. And it's like, wow, holy cow. He's a, this is a secular person. He's just a government official, right? He's a president of a country. That's a secular thing. But we, we, we've built this temple around him as a monument. And he's sitting there triumphantly in his throne as a king. Yeah. And, and, or, you know, as almost a, a quasi God. Yeah. It's really no different than what the Greeks or the Romans used to do in front of theirs. I mean, we don't have our, our, you know, annual or our quarterly feasts out in front of these gods. Right. But yeah, these are very much pontificated as those kinds of heroes. Yeah. It's, it's the exact same thing that, uh, that civilizations have done throughout all time. Yeah. So I don't want to go too far afield, but I think that what you're explaining here is important because, um, myth in, in the, in the sense of teaching and conveying truth is true. It's not, it's not false. Um, that's not the sense we're approaching myth with. We're approaching myth as true stories. Yeah, true stories or I don't know, like what you said with the apple tree, myth can be an absolutely true historical statement. In fact, it can be half and half. Like, for instance, you brought up George Washington and the cherry tree. You know, we do know there happened to be a man, George Washington, and we do know that his father happened to grow agriculture. But the chopping down of the cherry tree and everything, we know that that story didn't actually happen. It was a real person with a fictional story. So we get these half and half truths. And the reason why that is a myth is not because it's a false story, but because it was a story that was taught from even as much as the early 1800s all the way through in that George Washington was perceived as the father of the country and that his personal attributes of courage or valor or honesty Honesty. in in this particular story was really what set the tone of an American identity. And so him as the father of the country with this myth, even though it's half true, half false, the story is to impart that we as Americans who assume an American identity are the ones who would then take this national story, apply it to our lives, that if this is who the father of our country is and he's honest, then for him as the father of my country, I'm honest because I'm an American and I've entered into that story. 
which is the exact same thing. And, and when you brought it up, that's really powerful to start with the Adam and Eve myth, not because it, we're saying that it, it didn't happen that way. It, it could have happened exactly the way that the Old Testament and everything says it happened, or it could have been completely, you know, a, a fictional story. But as far as the Old Testament's telling of it is concerned, because the old way of writing way, you know, thousands of years ago was not necessarily for absolute historical value. It's more for its mythological value. It's teaching this story with this moral purpose and having an identity with it. So as you were talking about the peace of the Garden of Eden, that's really powerful because when we go back to the origin of the universe, like you were talking about, and we really begin to see that the first state, and it's not just in Judeo-Christian Islamic terms and going back to the to this Adam and Eve narrative, but Buddhism and Hinduism and, and other world religions, they do start with the origin of the universe and is generally in a state of peace or of unity or some kind of um, innocence, as that as you said uh, earlier. Yeah, I mean, in in the LDS uh, conception of it, or or even the larger Judeo-Christian conception, it's interesting that it's it's chaos, and the organization of chaos is is the creation, and when it's created, um, we have order out of chaos, and that first experience with humans at least in the garden is is one of it's it's order it's creation he's he's placed in their trees and bushes and and fruit comes forth um spontaneously and and everything is in perfect order and so that that first state of order is is a state of peace and uh lucifer or the accuser comes and and tempts them with something that's chaotic, which is a transgression against what was asked of Adam and Eve or commanded of them uh, to not partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we can dive into the reasons behind that. That might be a longer conversation, um, why they were commanded not to partake of that tree, um, knowing full well that they would or had to. Um, but nevertheless, that's an introduction of chaos into order. I really like that because I, I was last night, just last night I was studying Genesis and I, and I read over the creation story last night and I love how many times it references in Genesis one about water because water is everything. It's, it's like in the beginning there was the mist and there was the water and water is always symbolic in, in the old Testament as chaos, as basically unorganized matter, as as total oblivion, absolute destruction, total entropy, as it were, like Newton's second law of thermodynamics of entropy, right? You drop a, a, a drop of ink into a big vat of water, it's going to try to find equilibrium in that vat of water and, and dissolution is going to expand out. And that's chaos. And what's fascinating is water is always symbolic of chaos uh, in the scriptures. And so when Christ comes along and he says, I am living water to the woman at the well, this is power. This is a powerful statement. He's literally saying that I am the embodiment of that which brings life forth out of chaos, that all of the destruction, the chaos, all of the entropy in your life and of the universe itself, I am that which brings life and organizes it and brings it into unity. It's a powerful statement. Well, and it's interesting that in, in Eden itself, there is chaotic elements. Like you talked about water, there's four rivers that um, gush forth from from this source of creation in Eden. Uh, Pishon, Gihon, Hidekel, and is it Firat? Pirat? Firat, something like that. 
anyway, these four rivers that uh, come from from Eden, and but they're they're organized uh, along the the ordinal path of north, south, east, west, and so it's almost like taking the chaos of the rivers, <laughs> yeah, and still still using them to create you know the ordinal directions. Yeah, I, it's it's once you get into the symbolism, you start treating it as an actual myth, and you start treating it in those terms, then it really does just change everything um, that way. Well, you learn a lot more. I mean, if you're stuck in the, in the world of uh, of literal, regardless of whether it was, again, it just doesn't matter whether it actually happened or whether we're reading it as an allegory or if it's a mixture to create the narrative, it doesn't matter. The, the key is, what are we to learn from it? This is why it's the central message or uh, teaching mechanism of the temple experiences, because we're meant to learn from it. Right. It's, it's to place ourselves as an actual participant in the narrative, because whether or not it happened or not, I, if I get, um, this is just personally me, Shiloh Logan, and this, you know, the gospel of Shiloh 101. If I get to heaven and I'm told like, hey, you know what, like 99% of that whole Garden of Eden narrative thing was just a story to be able to, for you to treat as a myth, to be able to find identity from and to, you, to participate in this story. I'm going to be like, awesome, cool. Okay, right on. But if I get to heaven and they're going to tell me like, you know what, not, all of this was exactly the way it happened down to the very nth degree. And it was exactly how, how it was. Okay, cool. Is, I'm going to be right. It's the exact same thing. I'm be like, all right, cool, whatever. Because as far as it affects me right here, right now, and me going into the temple and having that whole bringing myself into the narrative moment, it's the same thing for me. And that's for me personally. I know a lot of people who truly value it having it be an absolute historical event. And that is perfectly fine. I'm cool with that too. But totally as far cool as that. we experience myth, myth doesn't worry about if it actually happened or not. Myth is that we create the story, a moral behind it, and how it then applies to us. So when Nephi talks about how he likened scripture into us, that's him talking about myth. I mean, that's literally the definition of it. When you liken that event to yourself. So bringing this back around to peace, I think it's a fantastic place to start because then we begin to realize the themes of chaos in our lives with, with water, with the water themes, how God brings out life and how life is in perfect harmony and in innocence. And, and how there's a person or a, a being here that is there to, to throw chaos into your life at any given moment. Right. So even though even though Garden of Eden is this organized uh, chaos, and it's this perfect creation that springs forth life spontaneously, and they can just live and be and and be in perfect harmony and peace. Nevertheless, in the midst of that, there's still this uh, element of further chaos that can be injected at any moment. Whether it's like here, partake of this fruit, or you know. I'm I'm going to try to sabotage your relationship between you and your husband by, you know, having you go and do my work for me or whatever, you know, <laughs> there's, there's just this element in all we do. If we're to liken it to ourselves, we have that too. We can be in the midst of a perfectly tranquil setting and then something can happen and throw, throw chaos at us. And then it's like, what we're supposed to learn from that is is the skill necessary to have lasting peace on an individual level. And of course, we can extrapolate that out to a larger level as well. 
Well, exactly right. Because when we think about dying and leaving this estate and going to the next estate, right, we we have this idea that all of a sudden, you know, and, and there's some scriptures that support the understanding, and then there's other prophetic statements that end up coming along, you know, amending that or clarifying places that are ambiguous. And it's that we tend to think that, you know, we're suddenly going to be in this place where all of our old memories come back from the pre-existence, where all of a sudden we remember everything we've ever been before, where we remember all that God is. And it's a complete place of absolute peace where nothing bad happens. We're completely and perfectly happy and everything is just, you know, bouncy clouds and angelic choirs and naked baby cherubs playing the harp, right? And that's, like, and that's kind of like the, the portrait that we play of it. But then we forget that our whole plan of salvation narrative begins with war that happened in heaven. Like, like there, was, there was conflict in heaven. And if there can be conflict in front of the throne of God in heaven, then there can be literally conflict anywhere. I mean, right. if, that, if that's not a place of sanctuary of saying that conflict can never happen, then it's just – that's not the point of our eternal rest, as it were. And so that's one of the reasons why I value so much, one of the many, many reasons, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is because it is literally the lesson of how to bring peace into your life, regardless of the external situation in the world around you. And so when I see that Christ is talking about how he's coming to bring a sword and not peace, it begins to change the narrative for me of like, what is the actual peace that Christ is talking about? Because throughout the book of Mormon, Mormon uses the word peace to define the lack of conflict between parties. So long as there's not a conflict, there's peace. And that's the way that the book of Mormon generally uses the word. But when Christ comes, he's using it in a different way. He's, he's almost more universalized using it as the sense of an inner peace, as the sense of the state of being by which you act from and by which you communicate. That sense of being by which you become the light to the world, that you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that it's, it's from that source of peace that emanates and illuminates and becomes the savor of everything that the kingdom of God has to offer. So let's take one of the images you just talked about there and pull it back into Eden again, the sword. So to, to, if we're beginning at the beginning and we're saying in the Garden of Eden, it was a state of, of peace, even if there was some chaos, nevertheless, Adam and Eve generally had peace, walked with God, ate their fruit, you know, enjoyed the animals that they could pet and wouldn't bite their hand off. It, everything was great. Um, and then they eat this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that is the thing, knowledge of good and evil, that tosses them out of their state of peace and into a state of enmity. God says, I will place enmity between thee and the seed of the woman, speaking to Lucifer. And then gives each party power to harm the other. One of them is bruise a heel, and one has the power to crush the skull. And so this is the beginning of, of strife, contention, enmity, and it's the polar opposite of peace. And then there's this introduction for their own well-being, is the way it's couched in the myth, to introduce a sword and cherubim to keep Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life and living forever in their sins. Yeah. 
So maybe help me out with that one a little bit, Shao. Yeah. So the tree of life is an, an amazing, an amazing part of the myth here and about how that it translates into our life. And I was confused about cherubim for the longest time. And not to say that I uh, truly understand it. I'm just barely coming into this. I feel like as an adult, <laughs> I'm just coming into these, these realizations. And it's completely changing the narrative for me because I look at cherubim now as, well, I'll tell you what, the very first time that I really sat down to, to wonder about the tree of life and about cherubim and a flaming sword guarding the way back is Lehi had a dream where he followed the rod of iron all the way up to the tree of life. And he never had a wrestle with the cherubim with a flaming sword. So I've often wondered like, where is, Cher where was cherubim during Lehi's time? Was he like taking a break? Was that like his uh, 15 minute break? Was he on a vacation? Like what happened to cherubim and a flaming sword in Lehi's, in Lehi's dream? Did, did they replant the garden or the tree from the garden of Eden over, over here to this place or, or what's going on here? Well, but I, I always thought that cherubs were just, or cherubim, were just, you know, little babies or something. So, or I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, you, when you think of cherubs, don't you think of like those those romantic paintings with the fat little babies? I don't know. That's, yeah, that's what I usually thought of myself. So, right. I mean, at Lehi could have just walked right by them. <laughs> scary. But the flaming sword is scary. So, tell us about the flaming sword. Swords are always symbolic of dividing. So, whenever we see the sword, like the sword of Laban, when it appears in the Book of Mormon narrative, it's it's a very very common theme and it keeps on pulling up in the weirdest of places and it, it's always usually very symbolic like in a stone the sword in the stone sword in the stone right <laughs> and so it, swords are always just this symbolism that they are sharp and that they divide asunder they cut away and fire is always symbolic of a sanctifying process a purging or you know cauterizing or something that is taking away the impurity and so, you know, fires used to melt metals and take away impurities there. You know, if back in the day when, you know, you had a gashing wound and you needed to make it stop bleeding and to, and to make sure it was healed, you'd put a red hot poker on it, seal it off, it'd scar over, you know, that whole thing. But when you have cherubim and a flaming sword. Interesting too. And just, just thinking about the King Arthur thing though, the only person that could pull the sword out of the stone was what? A person who was pure in heart, Right. Right. So same thing. So those, the person who wields it is the one who doesn't have those impurities that you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Same. And here we go again. There's the myth narrative all coming back again to the same kind of thing. We have it in literature. We have it in scripture. It just keeps on pulling up everywhere. It's the way we write. It's the way humanity manifests itself. But cherubim and a flaming sword I've come to realize is that, and, and without going too deep into the whole garden, the whole garden myth, is that we have entered into a state of being that is no longer capable of truly recognizing the love of God. When it, you know, when, when we partake of it or when we see it or when we're around it, we have no real way or context around it anymore that our mental faculty has come to a place where that is not something that we are in the state of being with anymore, of at least recognizing. For me, metaphysically, as far as reality is concerned, I see reality as an absolute place of love and compassion, that the universe is a is an inherently good place, that God is more for me than I am for myself, that he loves me in more ways than I will ever know, and that what stands in my way is not the impediments or the justice or the anger or the vengeance of God, but it's my own perception of God. And, that, and, that's, and that's the way I'm coming to it now, but when Adam and Eve are standing there with these scales over their eyes, as Paul describes it, 
and they don't know how to recognize the love of God, what needs to happen is there needs to be a cutting away of the natural man, that fallen state of perception to where how they're perceiving things is cut away. And that symbolism of cutting away is done by a sword and not just cutting away, but there's also a purifying and a, and a, and a, and a sanctifying effect that is accompanying that. So it's not just enough for you to give away bad habits, but it's to be sanctified into a more perfect way of being and of seeing. And that's what cherubim is about. It's just that entity that helps us. Cherubim isn't against me, you know, facing all directions. is not against me. Cherubim is there for me. And I have to approach cherubim and say, you know what? Do your worst and trust that that is the love of God there for me to be able to purify everything that I am so that when I experience the love of God, I know this is the love of God. And the fruit of the tree is the love of God. Right, exactly. Because that's, in Lehi's dream. That's the whole point of coming to that, tr- to that fruit and to that tree. And so we can see in Lehi's dream Cherubim, I think, is metaphorically talked about in different ways. I think it's the mist of darkness. I think it's prodding ahead with the iron rod. Um, you know, there's a lot of different images that Lehi's dream uses that I think have the same symbolic effect. What it basically says, we need to be able to press forward and allow that self to be cut away, which in a discussion of peace is inherent is this is an inherently necessary discussion because to find the peace that Christ has for us, We have to give up the myths and the narratives of this world, of our culture, of our sociopolitical and our sociocultural myths and narratives that we, I I, I never looked to even find out what those were. I mean, it's, I've had to consciously as an adult over the last five to six years, actively go out and to see and to find what sociocultural narratives actually meant and how that affected my identity. You know, why was it, you know, I originally started off with the question of wondering, how is it that a husband and wife will send their child off to war in a foreign country across the ocean to fight in another land, to kill another people, and to be killed in return, and to believe that if you don't allow your child, if your child doesn't do that, then it's a type of dishonor to you. Like that, that boggled my mind. How can you possibly have a narrative so strong in a country that you, it would override your natural biology to have that child go out to kill and be willing to be killed and have you be okay with, I mean, of course you'd be sad about it, but that you would want them to go and to fulfill that and have that be. And so I I studied real heavy the history of propaganda and of how nations form identity and about how nations and religions form identity in the exact same way. And it's all myth-based. It's, it gets into narratives of suffering and sacrifice, and it gets into, into narratives of how that forms identity and about how that identity is what drives our moral values. Because the things that we suffer and sacrifice the most are the things which create the strongest identities. And so the whole thing that Christ has come to say is that I offer you a completely new identity, which is exactly what baptism is supposed to symbolize, right? The death of the old identity and the coming forward of someone completely brand new. The old person goes into absolute death, chaos, and destruction in the water. It's not spiritual bleach water. They don't come out like purged of anything. It's that that's dead. It's gone. It's in oblivion. It's in death. It's in destruction. And what comes out is new life. It's a creation process all over again. That fits hand in hand with 
the cherub and the flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life, because having chosen at one point now to follow the way of dualism of good versus evil and this new narrative that is not necessarily competing narrative with peace, but a different narrative. Then he says to him, you can't bring that narrative back into this space. And so the cherub and flaming sword are there to guard the way to the tree of life, lest they come back with those sins and partake of a different way of life. So you, you can't mix the two. The idea of enmity and peace don't mix. Yeah. And so it's not that he's saying, put the sword out there and keep them away from this tree of life. He's saying, before you come into this space, we need to cut away those parts of the world that have, um, that would be anathema to this new way of being, which is just being. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating that in the Beatitude speak, this is, this is the very first Beatitude. So when Christ gives a Sermon on the Mount and the very first thing that he turns around and he gives them, the preamble to the rest of the sermon are the Beatitudes. And the very first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. And that poor in spirit, you know, we can go in for a longer discussion, but to shorten it, is that it's just supposed to be an emptying. The poverty of the spirit is basically the leaving away and the purging of all of earth's identities and dogmas and ways of being and seeing it's it's literally cherubim what, what you're talking about it's the cutting asunder and the sanctifying of all all and getting rid of all old narratives and ways of being and accepting god's way of being and it come to find out god's way of being is the sermon on the mount and you can't understand what the sermon on the mount is unless you understand what the beatitudes are but you can't understand what the beatitudes are unless you give up and you're willing to surrender. And Your that's old my, identities. Yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's it's our old identities. And that's my new favorite word is surrender is because that uh, for the longest time I was I was kind of stuck in the suffering sacrifice narrative of like, you know, we've got to suffer. We've got to sacrifice. We've got to suffer and sacrifice because that's how the Old Testament theme pours over into the New Testament and the Book of Mormon in our scriptures. When I was like, is is, is there a. Is there a more sub theme going on? Is there more of a, like a meta narrative to the suffering sacrifice discussion? And just one day it occurred to me like, yeah, there is. It's, it's, it's that whole release. It's, it's that letting go. It's the surrender because that's what suffering and sacrifice are supposed to entail. It's the surrender of what we think we are for allowing God to be, for God to reveal to us what we really are and come to find out what we really are eternally is far superior to what we thought we were. But, and this gets into President Kimball in uh, 1976 in The False Gods We Worship. He says that no amount of pleading has ever gotten the prophets of God to successfully help the people let go of that which is celestial for them to have that which is celestial. And I've always wondered and pondered over that statement that no amount of pleading has ever gotten us to be able to allow, to get rid of that which is celestial for that which is celestial. Because we're standing there in our natural man, we're standing there in our fallen state, and we find no problems in living in the narratives that our culture and society want to inform us and to teach us about. And when God's narrative comes out, it's like, man, what is this? This is, this is just gobbledygook. And, you know, Christ even says so in the Beatitudes. It's like, listen, you enter into this sphere of God's identity, nobody's going to understand who you are. But guess what? You're going to have a lot of peace in the process, but nobody's going to understand who you are. 
So how do we start to um, cut away or release or surrender and, and enter into that state of poverty, which is conducive to receiving the peace of God, the, the peace that Christ said he left us and gave to us? Now, I don't know if there is just one right way. I, I know the way that I've followed it, um, and I've talked about it before. It's usually in, and it's come through a lot of contemplative ways, and that's why I've really enjoyed these podcasts and doing these with you as far because they've helped me in my contemplative journey in recognizing and in coming into just silent moments with God. And I, I was talking with my wife here several weeks ago, and I had the idea of asking, is God naturally in a state of silence? Does God not also enjoy the reality of loudness? Is God not in the loud? Is he only in the soft and silent? And the thought occurred to me is that God is also in the loud and he's also in the, you know, because we, we talk about like Elijah, the God wasn't in the wind, you know, the big wind in the volcanoes and the earthquakes and the lightnings. He was the still small voice. And we always put God into this very quiet realm of being. And what I've what I think is going on now, and it's the idea that I'm operating and turning in, is that we live our particular way of being right now in the natural man in a very loud way with a very loud voice and that in that loudness we cannot differentiate what is loud of our own natural man and what is loud of god and so in order to find god we kind of have to go to the other end of the spectrum the other end of the pen, you know let the pendulum swing to the other side in the stillness and the silence that it needs to be a moment of disruption and I, 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 I found that that's absolutely beautiful what it, with this concept of the moment of disruption. You know, that's what Sunday and the Sabbath is for me. And that's what church is for me, is that it's a disruption of the rest of the week, that the mundane and the regular gets put aside for something that is different. And for me, it's, it's like the, the loudness that you're describing, I would maybe liken it for me anyway, more to clutter. And, and if I were to... You know, to answer your question, if you the one you asked Rachel, your wife, um, about you know, is God not in the loud? You know, I, I would say I don't really experience God in the clutter, though. I, I think there's a little more, and maybe this is getting too esoteric, but for me, when I cut away and and want to go closer to that state of poverty, it's really removing distraction and clutter. And the distraction that you're talking about, though, is something different where you're actually distracted by uh, – it's a distraction that takes you out of the clutter, out of the loudness. Yeah, I think a lot of the times our perception – the natural man, I think, is naturally cluttered. And I think a lot of the times the natural man is loud and cluttered. And so we seek to find a place that is quiet and decluttered. And I think that's a great way to put that. Um, I think God is in all of the things. And, and I say that in the realm of, that I've recently begun to just see glimpses. It's not that I, I live in it even the majority of the time or even some of the time. It's really just glimpses that when I'm in moments of strife or anxiety or pain where I'm beginning to see God in that. And that's been a completely revolutionary way to be able to see and experience God is in my pain. Because usually we want to blame God that he's not there in our pain, that he's causing our pain or he's allowing our pain to happen. And to actually come to a, a cognitive place of experiencing God in our pain and to be able to say, in my pain, this is good, has been 
a revolutionary experience for me. And so because of that, I've started to question trying to put God in boxes of any type. Is God only here or is God only there? Can I only experience him here? Can I experience there? And what I've realized is that for a lot of contemplative monks, I've recognized that they can't find him in the silence, but it's when they go out into the open and they start to experience God in the noise of nature, as it were. And they start to go out into society that they begin to see God in society. And it's just the exact opposite for me, that what is becomes normal for us, we begin to find God in the, in the disruption of our normal life. Because for me, my normal life is hectic right now. I work 12 hours a day. I got my family to take care of. I got a, my job to do. And I, it's just think, 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 think. And that's my life. And so I value the moments of quiet and of peace and of silence because that's where I, it's the disruption from what I normally experience in life where I find God. And that's where I find peace. But I've often wondered, like, am, am I just putting, is that just where I need to go because of my own subjective self? I, and I think that's more of what it is. I think God's everywhere. Yeah, I like that because I think what you described earlier, the image of the pendulum is really the key there, right? Because for the majority of humans, we spend our lives very, uh, I, maybe this is Western humans, Western civilization more than anything, but we, we, we don't have simple lives. It, it's, it's very complicated. We've got responsibilities in various spheres. You step out into the chaos of, uh, you know, a city, for instance, and there's cars around you and noises and businesses and flashing lights and all that stuff. And that can all seem very busy, cluttered, loud. And so I think the majority Western civilization probably lives more in that realm. But that doesn't mean that for the whole world, you know, someone living in a, in a village in Southeast Asia or something like that, you know, maybe doesn't have that level of distraction, clutter, busyness, whatever, they may be living a very simple life and possibly don't experience the other side of the pendulum hardly at all. And you're right, there's there's different ways to see God in all of it. I, I totally agree with that. I just think that where where we're at, the majority of us, we have we experience a whole lot more of the busy. Yeah. And so it, it is nice to to step outside of that world momentarily. And, you know, people have said to me over the last couple of years, it's like, I don't have time for meditation. I don't have time for, you know, contemplative prayer or whatever. I'm like, really? <laughs> you don't have 10 seconds. You don't have one minute. Because I promise you in one minute of concentrated stillness, I promise you, that that's enough time to experience something different than what you're used to in one minute. And, you know, I was sitting in my office about uh, four or five days ago or something like that. And uh, this scripture that we've mentioned uh, earlier in this, in this episode here of peace, I leave with you, my peace, I give unto you from John 14, 27. Those words came to me and I thought, you know what? Yeah, I'm just going to quickly open up my little gospel library and go to that scripture. And I just stared at it for a bit. And then I decided I'm going to write this down. So I write down that one verse. It's actually half of a verse. It's not even the whole verse. And I just wrote down, peace I leave with you, comma, my peace I give unto you. And then my mind was drawn to the the method of prayer contemplative prayer by subtraction where you take a word or two off and you say the same phrase again and then you take another word or two off and you do it again until you get down to the core of what that scripture is trying to communicate to you specifically 
and there's so much um, intention in that because someone might take the first word off or another person might take the last word off. Another person might remove some punctuation and change the meaning completely. For me, I just took a couple words off the end with each round and pretty soon I had seven separate verses that spoke to me from one small phrase. It started with, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And then I subtracted a couple words and it said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give. Take another couple words off. Peace I leave with you, my peace. And then peace I leave with you. And then peace I leave with. Peace I leave. Peace. And just kind of did it one at a time. That took me five minutes. Five minutes of my day to experience a level of connection with the Savior and what he was trying to communicate to me in that moment that is, you can't replace that. And in all the hours that we spend going hard at work, going hard at family, going hard at play and recreation, you just can't tell me you don't have a minute or five or even 10 seconds to take three deep breaths. It's there and we just need to take advantage of it. I really like that process. I'm going to have to start doing that more often because every time I do that, I'm like, yeah, that really, <laughs> that lands every time I do that. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's just good stuff because I, I love the way of doing that contemplative prayer because each level does communicate a completely different meaning. That meaning is always expressed in the verse, but yet each one of those levels speak to a different part of our lives. So when you just did that right now, and I'm, I'm kind of just, and I was just thinking about it, each one of those phrases identified a different experience in my life that I was having stress over. Isn't that amazing? It, it's, it's half of a verse. It's not even the full verse. It's half of a verse. But by doing it that, that way that we just did it, to me, and, and I did this when, when I wrote it out, I told you I wrote it out and, and did it seven times, right? right? One under the other. And then next to each verse, I just wrote out or drew a little emoji of what it was communicating to me. And the first one had a couple of praying hands. It's gratitude. My peace I give unto you. Thank you. You know, and then a couple down, it's like, you know, my peace I leave with you, my peace. And it's just this sense of happiness. So I write this little smiley face and so on and so forth down to actually sadness because peace I leave with he's he's departing and he's taken some of his peace with him and that happened you know and then finishing off with just this very calm general content feeling of peace just one word peace you know and that's a different emotion that grabbed me and that's that's the amazing part of that process is how many levels he's trying to communicate with us even within the smallest you know, one verse, half of a verse of scripture. That's, that's really encapsulated what the Lectio Divina process is about too, is really taking something small and seemingly insignificant and having it just absolutely blow up and expand within you and well up into this, it's this well of everlasting life, so to speak, you know, within you as you partake of the fullness of what that verse is trying to communicate to you. It's a really beautiful process.
Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's it's such a powerful way to be able to come to scripture as well. Because you know, we 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 glance over scripture, we try to treat it analytically, and what I found is that scripture is really powerful because you, we, there's nothing wrong with be able to treat scripture analytically, to be able to get down into the nuances and the semantics of it and that whole thing. But then there is a completely different part of scripture that we just don't recognize. We don't practice it. We don't preach it. We don't talk about it. It's just this big void. And sometimes we stumble onto it. And it's usually we stumble onto it by going outside of our faith tradition and finding out what other people and how other people take with scripture. And it's just like what you're talking about, because that experience of just taking that verse and of walking it back and letting each one of those phrases land for a different part of your life and how that interacts with your life is what really takes, you know, I, I'm reminded of what the apostle said, that we're tired of the law being written on stone, just being words on a page or, or etched into stone and having them be a rule here. We want it written on our hearts. On the fleshy tablets of our hearts. That's right. And that whole concept is that you literally awaken the scripture up within yourself. You know, I've told the story of Joseph Smith's translation uh, more times than I care to count because it's such a beautiful example for me. It's a, and I'm doing this as a myth, right? No, I'm going to I'm going to take a real historical event. I'm going to treat it as a myth because it's a story with a moral ending that I found identity to. So here we go. Is when Joseph Smith was translating. At first, he was translating with the Urim and Thummim, and we don't know how that worked. We don't know how that you know spectacles attached to a a breastplate, and we don't know how that. He didn't even know how that worked. It took him like two years to be able to get the first 116 pages, right? And then after he loses his gift of translation, he gets back into the swing of things. He then evolves into a stone and a hat, and he uses that for a little while. And he's not even consulting the plates. He's just looking at a stone and a hat. And then from that point, he evolves from that to where now he doesn't even consult the plates and sometimes, and he just stands there and he just dictates. And what's fascinating about this, you know, several historians uh, like Bushman and, and several very prominent, more knowledgeable people than I will ever be about this subject you know, they've, they've questioned, like, what is going on here? We talk about Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon when he did no such thing. Translation is where you understand two languages intimately, and you're able to, and you have the ability of being able to communicate ideas that are not word-for-word ideas. Like, you know, anybody who knows two languages knows that there are entire ideas that are encapsulated in a single word that another language doesn't have a word for. You have to use a bunch of words to describe what one word means in another language. And someone who translates has the ability of knowing that and being able to do that process. And that's not what Joseph Smith did. He didn't have a knowledge of Reformed Egyptian to be and the, and the nuances of the English language to be able to do that. So whatever Joseph Smith did was not translation. And that, I think it was Elder Suarez even in conference, that I, I think it was uh, his message that even identified and talked about that. But what Joseph did through this process and what I see happened was that God gave him external tools and external stimuli that was able to then work on his interior Urim and Thummim. And that Joseph was slowly becoming his own Urim and Thummim, his own, his own uh, tool by which the divine and revelation sprung up from within himself. And this is where I find that our true part of the plan of salvation is played out in that we begin to become purified in ourselves, we become the receptacle by which revelation flows. That Joseph doesn't have to rely upon external stimuli or external objects like the Yerman Thummim or of a stone and a hat, but then he eventually evolves to where now he is that he is, he is the living embodiment of the Yerman Thummim himself. That he is that, vestige by, that, that vessel by which revelation flows. 
And I see this, what you just did with the scriptures being that exact same process, because we, we rely on the scriptures as just tools like the Yermanthamum. And then it was like, we can graduate now to where we're actually using them to attach a different part to identify a different part of our human experience. Cause like I said, when you read those back all the way down, it's like there was a different moment in my life that I could think about and that it just, they automatically attached to that and just brought peace and comfort there, just momentary all the way down. It's amazing. Well, and even the way that I read them was intentional with emphasis on certain words or whatever. And that can change. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if you change, um, peace, I leave with to peace. I leave with, and it's just slightly different, you know, different, uh, emphasis or how about this one? Peace. I leave with you. Yeah. Peace. I leave with you. You know, it's just slightly different, but that's the beauty of it is, um, we, we make the scriptures our own through that process. And, and you do, you become a literal Urim and Thummim within as you, as you contemplate these scriptures subjectively, according to the way the spirit touches you personally. So to kind of swing this back around towards, towards the, the core idea of peace again, um, and emptying, I see peace as being a, a position or a state of being without extreme passions or temptations on either side. And the, if you go to the Buddhist uh, way of thinking about this, they always talk about, you know, putting aside judgment and just letting things be as they are. And so one of the ways we can train ourselves to, to kind of be in that state is not looking upon every little thing that happens to us or every uh, closely held belief as being the thing that we have to cling to. It's part of that emptying process. We have to at least release our grip a little bit, not, not even necessarily let go all the way, but even do this in stages where it's like, okay, I'm just not going to cling so tightly to this one thing that I'm passionate about. I'm just going to release my grip a little bit and be gentle about it, right? And just see what happens when I do that. Now, I, I understand that some people are going to interpret that and say, well, that's risky. You're just, you know, and this is one of the things that early on within our church anyway, and I shouldn't say early, I mean, as, as recent as the 70s, when meditation started, especially transcendental meditation started becoming a thing worldwide, and it was creeping into members of the church and they were seeing the benefit of it. They're like, wow, this is incredible. Well, one of the warnings that we used to get, and I wasn't a member of church at this time, but anyway, I read about it, is that, you know, by meditating and going through this releasing or uh, trying to attain a poverty of spirit, that you're basically clearing out space for the devil to enter in. And that's very risky. And so you don't want to do that. You'd rather fill up your vessel with positive messages, you know, from general authorities and leaders of the church and scriptures and whatnot, right? And so it's very dangerous to meditate is, is kind of the message. And we haven't heard that message for decades. And why is that? I think it's because people are generally recognizing that that's not as big a risk because intention means a lot. You know, and, and when we intentionally, like I'm entering into this process of emptying because I want God to fill my space. 
Well, that intention matters. I'm not going into this process with the idea of I want Satan to enter into my body and get empty for him. Come on. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, my, my intention matters. And so one of the things, again, that we can do to reiterate here is that we can release our tight grip on the things that we hold so dear, our ideas, our passions, temptations, just gradually and, and, and gently let those things go a little bit, at least just release the strong grip we have on them and allow for God to exercise his agency. I use that phrase a lot because he respects us as agents unto ourselves and will not override our agency. And so in order for us to give him space to work within us, we have to um, somewhat subject our ego to to his will. We need to allow him to work within us if that's our intention. And part of the, the egoic attachment we have is to these passions, temptations, ideas, identities. And so releasing or letting go of those is a, a huge first step, I think. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it because I was just having this conversation earlier this morning with with. Marianne Meehan, who is working on doing our books for the PAX project and for our, our children's books for the PAX project. And we were talking about how to create a beatitude narrative for children who don't truly yet comprehend how poor in spirit would really enter into a child's mind. Like, how do you, how do you teach that to a child that is already so pure about identity and about letting go of all those things? And one of the things we talked about was children do understand expectation though and about how their expectations are formed and so even as as old as 5 6 7 years old they can start to see how they projected themselves into the world and that you know somebody was mean to me and so you sit down like were were they really being mean to you or is is that how you interpreted it and and so you begin to work through their emotions about how they see the world and through expectations and there's a story that happened to me uh, oh, about a year and a half ago. And I think I, I maybe even told the story about a blueberry muffin, about how I taught seminary. And, and I love I love blueberry flavored baked goods. I'm not a fan of blueberry blueberries themselves, <laughs> but I like blueberry flavored baked goods. And I love blueberry muffins. And so I'd give me a blueberry muffin and, a, and an energy drink every morning before seminary, because that was, that was just how I rolled at five o'clock in the morning. And this one morning, I happened to see that there were blueberry donuts there. And I'd never had a blueberry donuts and I was had really high expectations on what these would taste like and how good they would be. But when I come to find out I ate them a little bit later and I bit into it, it wasn't, it looked like an old fashioned donut, which was my favorite, but it ended up being a cake donut, which is very dense and moist. Blech. Exactly. So I was, it was, it was a horrible experience. And I remember just being completely devastated at just how awful this donut was. So I ate my blueberry muffin instead, washed it down, kind of cleared out the flavor. And I looked back at the package and I'm like, was, was that really so bad? And as I ate it a second time, it was about twice as good as it was before. It, it wasn't the best still. It wasn't what I, you know, my preference, but it wasn't as bad as it was the first time. And so I asked myself, and I've asked myself a lot since then, what changed? You know, the blueberry donut didn't change. It was my expectation of what that blueberry donut was is what changed that reinterpreted my whole experience. And so I started to realize that a lot of the time that my disappointments and my coming to the world and the and the 
the pain that I feel and the bad experiences I have are largely me projecting an expectation based on my past, past experiences, and me projecting an expectation into the future. And then reality is not what I expected it to be. And that's where pain comes from. That's where my lack of peace generally comes from. Unmet expectations. Yeah. Un projected expectations that were never met. And expectations that had no real basis in reality to begin with. So I've enjoyed this case study of of that process in in the fact that I've got twin boys, and they're they're not uh, they're not identical. They're fraternal twins, and so they are completely different humans, completely as if they were born to different families almost. That's, I mean, they're, they're not identical DNA, right? Everyone knows how twins work, especially fraternal twins, right? So they, they look completely different. There's like four inches between them and like 30 pounds or something. They act completely different. You know, you've got hyper uh, competitive versus just content, loving, I mean, calm, um, em but then you've got emotional and less emotional. It's just amazing to have this, this case study that I've had for the last eight years with my boys and they're the youngest kids. And so we, all, all their older siblings, I have six kids and their older siblings will project upon them a lot of these, um, expectations that are very much the same, but they'll put them on both of them, you know, and, and. If I'm honest, I do it and my wife does it and we, we try to catch ourselves and say, nope, these are individuals. We can't expect from one what we expect from the other in terms of, um, you know, capacity, ability, aptitude, whatever. They're different humans. And I think that we do this all the time individually because and this is one of the um, attributes of if I were to call it the opposite of peace. This is what the, one of them that I would highlight is this comparison, this idea of comparison that we do to ourselves. We do it to others. Um, I do it to my kids occasionally, and I, I hate that I do that. So I really try to catch myself. But, um, you know, for instance, they play on the same soccer team. You know, they're going to be different. There's four inches and 30 pounds between them, and they're completely different humans. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> And, and But yet their expectations of themselves and our expectations of them and the coach's expectation of them and their, their teammates' expectations of them, it all, it all gets pushed together in, into, hey, this is the expectation for both of you, even though you're different humans. And, and we do this. So I, you know, I live in a very prosperous area. We moved here 18 years ago when it was just a cow town and, and that we loved it and it was great and it was just a bunch of farmers and that was pretty much it just kind of normal town and uh being 15 minutes from park city utah which is you know super rich and prosperous and and being a half an hour from the valleys in a very beautiful area of our state it's like everyone just started migrating in and the prices went up and the market did what it does and supply and demand says law whatever and so the, the area has completely changed. It's now like this, this little bed of prosperity and, and luxury. And we're in the same house we built 18 years ago, this little track <laughs> home, you know, and, and it's so difficult. Like everyone around you, you see there's this upward mobility and like, you know, 
people that are 10 years your junior experiencing these massive liquidity events with sold businesses and entrepreneurial success. And you're just like, wow, you know, and that's a trap. You can get pulled into that so quickly, but we do that in every aspect of our lives, right? Is this comparison and expectations that are placed on us. And part of that emptying process is to see ourselves and other people as absolute individual humans, as, as individuals with, um, different aptitudes, qualities, skills, whatever. And that's the way God sees us, as beautiful individuals. And if we can release some of those expectations and temptations and whatever else you want to call them, passions, comparisons, you get closer to the non-dualistic way of seeing things as just being content with who you are, where you're at, what you've got, etc., and I think that's a, another path to uh, getting closer to the return of uh, return to the garden piece, you know, is getting rid of the enmity and comparison and, and competition that we experience every day. Yeah, when I start to talk about myself and when I when I go inside my own head and try to figure out how am I interacting with the world and why am I not at peace right now? You know, I'll I'll typically take an experience that I'm taking with or I'm dealing with, and inevitably it'll be some kind maybe some kind of conflict with another person. It may or may not involve someone else. It may just be my own insecurity or my own projection of expectation about what I should be, about who I should be, about what I should say, about how I should present myself. The list is endless, right? You just described an excellent way of you know they call it keeping up with the Joneses where the expectation, should I be doing more or better, or am I falling behind? You know, we create all of these narratives and these stories in our heads about the way things should be. And I think that's one of the greatest things that rob us of our peace is just unmet expectations that were never rooted in reality to begin with. And so for me, one of the greatest things that I do to find peace is I identify just, just one thing, because, I mean, <laughs> I don't need to be that tenacious. I just identify one thing, and that's sufficient for me. And in that one thing, I'm like, okay, why why am I feeling this way? Why is this robbing my peace? And it's typically a story. And if I just ask myself, and I kind of go into a contemplative way, of like, why is this affecting you this way? And inevitably, something will come up. And the ego, will, you know it's your ego, because your ego will never, ever, ever want you to be the problem. The, your ego will say, well, everything else around me is telling me that something else around me is a problem. And that's why I'm feeling this way. And that's the first thing that I, if I ever think that, then I know something is really, really off with my way of thinking is to, is that I've put, I've allowed the external world to have control over how I'm feeling things. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. So I go inside myself. I'm like, okay, so the world is what the world is going to be. Maybe that's all true. Maybe Maybe just like what Christ said in the in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe there are people and enemies who are intentionally trying to come after me. Maybe there are actual people who are who don't have my well-being at heart. And maybe that person who has said that slight really meant it. You know, let's assume the worst. Fine, whatever. But it's okay, now what am I gonna do about it? And it's going into the that narrative that story in my own head and my own heart. Of just, and without judgment, I think that's one of the biggest keys of this kind of reflection 
is that it has to be without judgment. You cannot go into a moment of self-reflection with a critical eye of judgment. It's simply, this is just going into yourself and asking yourself, what is going on here now? Okay, why did why why was that feeling there? Why was this experience the way that it was? Why did you interpret it this way? And the minute it, it is, well, because somebody else did this, he's like, no, 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 no. Put that away. What else is it? And then when the next thing is, it's going to make yourself look judgment. It's like, well, you did this and, and it's going to be critical. And that's and that accusing voice isn't right too. And you get to discard that. Until finally, if you're able to just get rid of all of the accusing voices, and it's the accusing voices of unmet expectations, and just finally get down into the very heart of it, usually you'll find that there was just a moment when something hurt you, where there was a moment that, that, that there was a moment of pain. And when I found those, what I found has been the most effective is just to sit in that. And it only for me, sometimes it only takes a few seconds. Sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it's multiple times, but usually I can just sit with that. And once I identify with it and realize, Oh, there was a moment of pain. And I just sit with that for a second and I don't judge it. I don't try to analyze it. I just let it, I just, I just let it be. And I just try to sit with it and let that feeling and let that emotion just be what's, been powerful for me and present in those moments is that that pain just goes away. Or what happens is there is a creative spark that comes, which then communicates a way for me to begin to act in a way to be able to deal with that pain in a positive way that causes no judgment for either me or for another person that I may have been in conflict with. And so it's just a proactive way of being that I can step into. And it's powerful the way that the body does that and the way the mind and the soul and the spirit work in those ways. Because in that point, then when I reapproach the situation, if there was conflict between someone, my, it's, it's the best way to soften my heart that I've ever come across. Like, like just that those few moments of self-reflection without judgment and without expectation of just sitting with it and ultimately finding the source of that judgment and the expectation and letting it go. Man, that has brought such a peace into my life that I, don't, I, I can't even put a dollar figure to. It's, it's been really powerful. It's instructive to me that, and this is an interesting, almost, uh, it, it seems ironic that Christ is the judge. And yet he's, he's perfectly merciful and, you know, bounteous in his mercy. And yet he's the judge. And so when you take judgment and impart in infinite mercy, what you end up with is someone who accepts you. And, and yet on the other side of the spectrum, you have Satan. His name literally means to plot against or the adversary. And, and implied in that title is contention. Um, and, and, you know, kind of like that, uh, strife, strife is the word. And so you can see just right within that construct, which direction you need to go to find peace. Satan, if he's an embodied being or, or he's a construct meant to represent strife or, or adversarial contention, doesn't matter. 
it's part of the narrative and an important one. And it's very true. And that is that, you know, we're trying to get away from adversarial uh, contention, plotting, and, uh, and get more towards that sense of it's okay to forgive myself. It's okay to just see things as they are, as they played out. And of course, try to learn from them, you know, but entering that, that peace of God is really about, you know, letting go of the adversarial way of viewing the world. So we've talked about, um, a lot of the inner stuff and let's, let's talk about kind of external peace and how do we operate interpersonally with friends, family, communities, nations in a way that. Uh, promulgates peace in those relationships. And so if you were to take the inner peace and extrapolate it to those other uh, ways of interacting with not just ourselves, but with our relationships, communities, families, and the world, how can we take those same skills and exercise them that way? You know, Riley, you told a story not too long ago about a young man, someone I think who had stolen something from you and about how you would kind of entered into over more for more of a mentorship program with with the this person than you know, trying to see him punished. Yeah, I, I had about $5,000 worth of guitar equipment stolen from my office on a night where I accidentally left my door unlocked after work. Yeah. And we caught the guy on video. We have video throughout our offices here. Um and our, our, uh, our maintenance guy for the building recognized the kid and knew where he lived and all that. And yeah, so we, we ended up getting in contact with him and, uh, you know, the other partners that were also stolen from in, in the building here, they, uh, they wanted the police involved and I insisted we not, uh, press charges. I said, there's, I'm not willing to take a kid who's just barely an adult, 18 years old or whatever, and, you know, have his life ruined over probably what can be chalked up to a stupid mistake. Um, and so, yeah, we, we ended up, all three of us agreeing that we were going to uh, have periodical meetings with this young man and uh, try to mentor him back into a better way of living. And it's been fantastic. I mean, he's become a friend to all of us and, it's cool to see his life going a different direction rather than just becoming another product of a, a broken system. See, I love that too. I, I had a similar experience when I lived in Utah. My wife and I had a, a business where we had an employee that had started to sell our leads to another company unbeknownst to us. And so all the money that we were paying for marketing and for leads and for lead generation, he, this employee had started to sell them and to work with them in, for another company. And when everything was said and done, by the time we caught hold of what was going on, because we started to see there was a lot of fall off with this one, this one salesman's one employee, and that we weren't getting the business that we were before. It was really consistent before, and all of a sudden it just like dropped off. So we had to pull our whole sales team off the regular calls to basically go back over this one employee's logs and like recall customers to see. And, and so finally, by the time we figured out the damage that had been done, it was right around $8,000 to $10,000 worth of lost profit, let alone all the other money that we paid for the salesman's time to be able to go back through to figure out what had happened. And so we're sitting there and, and this was the first time we'd been in a, in a business situation where this had happened. 
we didn't know what to do. Um, we ended up, I ended up meeting, I had an attorney at the time, attorney friend. We talked with him at the time. He's like, man, this is like the biggest open and shut case I've ever seen in my life. You could get this guy for about, you know, for definitely for damages and this. And so he's seeing dollar bills all over the place and dollar bill signs. And, and so I was like, wow, really interesting, interesting. And I came back and I was talking over with my wife and this particular salesman, he was newly married. I think his wife was just, was pregnant, was like three months pregnant. And I just had this moment in my life where this wave of, of, of peace and of grace just came over. And I was like, man, what do I do? Because just like you, it's like th- this guy was a young father. He was going to be a young father. He's a young husband. And how do I, how do I destroy the reputation of a young husband and a young father this way to be able to try to get the courts involved and to be able to set his life up where he's $20,000 in debt to a company because of whatever. And it just happened to be a buddy of mine called me up that day to go to the temple. He's like, Hey, I'm going to the temple. You want to go with? I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. And it was just before it was kind of getting, getting ready to go there to the, the Provo temple that I, I just, I knew we had to let everything go with this one sales guy, you know, definitely let him go. You know, <laughs> we're not going to keep him on, but just to let him go. And just to give him some admonition of saying, listen, we know what's happened. We know what's going on. And, and then just to let it be, to take our, to take our losses and then just move on with life. And so that's what we did. Um, got in the temple and it just the amazing and overabundance of the confirmation of just peace and of well-being. I have no idea what happened to that, to that, uh, to that guy. Um, I, did, I didn't stay into contact with him, but I truly hope that his life improved from that. I don't know if he ended up telling anybody. I just, my wife and I sat down with him privately. We told him we know exactly what's going on. We unfolded all the evidence. We told him, we showed all the customers, all the payments, all the spreadsheet of everything and said, this is what it is. And it just, we're going to let you go. And just the feelings of shame and of panic and of doubt. And you could see his mind was racing a thousand miles an hour. And then when we just, when we said, you know, we're going to let it go, you know, I don't think he'd even finished processing that the fact that he got caught doing all this other stuff had come to him by the time he recognized that we're just going to let him go. But, you know, it's just letting that process end. And I don't know what that's going to be for him in his long term. I, I hope it helped him out. And I hope that he turned his life around and that nothing like that happened again. But what it brought for me and my wife was such an overwhelming sense of love and com- and compassion and care and concern. And ultimately that word peace that was that we would never have found otherwise. And so when you talk about, you know, what, how do we project this into our regular lives? I don't know what the answer is from everybody. And I don't know if you know, business owners out there have been ripped off. You're like, no, I need to get this back or something needs to happen. I don't know what the answer is for everybody. I'm not here to say that I do. But what I do know is that when you have that confirmation of peace, that in moments like this and in your, in your business life, and just follow that. If that comes and if you get the impression of doing that, always err on the side of finding peace and of mercy because those moments that I've done that in my life have been far, far superior than the moments that I ever sought for justice and retribution. Justice and retribution just doesn't have the same end and the same purpose as mercy and of peace. It just doesn't. And, you know, having said that, I really empathize with people that 
have been wronged in a very uh, terrible way. You know, maybe a loved one was harmed or even killed, you know, but, and I don't even want to say, but that just is. And it, it's sad. And I really feel for those people. I'm always, however, impressed. And I really want to follow the example of those who have been harmed, damaged, and go and immediately forgive. Um, I was listening to, there was a, a press conference in Portland that was put on, I think it was yesterday or day before or something like that. And some community leaders were kind of pleading with protesters to put a moratorium on the, on the rioting and the property damage and everything that's going on up there in Oregon. And there was a, a probably a police chief or someone or superintendent or someone that was speaking. And then, and then he invited a, an ecumenical representative of a, a lot of Portland area churches to come up and speak. And he was a, he was a black man who had a lot of uh, personal experience in the civil rights movement and whatnot had been mentored by Coretta Scott King. And, and he gets up there and uh, you know, he's, he's essentially pleading with these protesters and in a, an extremely extremely merciful and forgiving way, inviting them to the table to negotiate not only a cessation, even if temporary of the rioting, but also to, to be stakeholders and come to the table and see if we can hammer out an agreement that, that uh, recognizes your pain and also stops the damage that's being done. And he cited as examples, uh, a couple of, uh, recent, uh, I guess, tragedies where, you know, someone had murdered uh, a black family and those uh, murdered a black person and that that the family of that person had gone and uh, either showed up at court to forgive the perpetrator, the accused, or had sent a letter to that effect. Um, And he said, this is also what it means to be uh, black. And, And so he was contrasting that against the whole the violent aspect of, of that movement. And he said, this is also what it means, you know? And anyway, I just thought it was beautiful. And that spoke to me, um, in a way that the retributive justice model doesn't speak to me. And I know it's not the same for everyone. There are some people that, that want that retribution. They want, um, justice in that respect. And I recognize the desire for that. Um, but, one of the things you spoke to that really uh, spoke to me is seeing people as having worth all the way across the spectrum. Just like this pastor did, he invited these rioters to the table and he said, we we hear you and uh, we want to listen to you, but we can't do that with all this noise and violence and destruction that's going on. And so, you know, I, I don't have all the answers either um, as to how we take some of the things that we use in terms of tools for achieving peace on a personal level and how we extrapolate those to the, the community, families, nations, world. But I, I can say that uh, one of the aspects that's very conducive to peace is, is that mercy, that forgiveness, humility is a big part of it. Um, willing to communicate. Um, I think that 
in the social media age, one of the things we get caught up in is the physical distance that is between us and the separation that is created by electronic communication versus in-person communication or even over the phone for that matter. Um, the physical distance insulates us from uh, feeling somewhat guilty for what we say. It's interesting, isn't it? Like we're still people. Our, our online um, identity that represents who we are as a real person has our name right there. You know, I'm Riley Risto on social media. You'll find me there. And if, if I've said something uh, offhanded or embarrassing, it's, it's still me that said that, even though I did it through a computer screen, um, I'm responsible for those words. And that, uh, that's something that we forget a lot of times is if we want to have peace with those around us, we have to envision having a conversation face to face with them and see how that changes things. And so physical distance can be an impediment to, or, um, an aid to, if you close that distance, it can be an aid to creating peace between people. So what is it between the nation of Iran and the nation of the United States that keeps us from having those dialogues? A lot of time it is physical distance. Um, if they flew over here or we flew over there and had a face-to-face -face with them, you know, there would definitely be some standoffishness. But I also think that you'd accomplish a lot more being face-to-face and I understand diplomacy, and I know why they don't do it. I just think the reasons for doing it are better. Um, lack of understanding that comes when you inject a lot of distance or intermediaries between two communicating parties can really put to, can make peace and uh, can be an impediment to peace. Um, dualistic thinking of saying we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're evil, instead of seeing things along a, a spectrum or shades of gray and just saying, you know, maybe I'm not 100% right, and maybe they're not 100% wrong. There's probably some in-between, finding common ground. I think all of these are ways that we can start to encourage peace between parties on a larger scale. I think so too, and something you said there really brought something up for me is that in talking about all of this, I know that a lot of the times we end up in our feelings of peace and our knowing we've had these experiences before and we've had realizations of walking maybe what we perceive as a higher path than normal, is that sometimes there is a trap that we begin to form expectations in living the higher way. And I think that's just a fundamental flaw that you know the natural man and the, the ego end up coming back in again because for me, I know that when I see those special moments happen of forgiveness and compassion and peace in moments when, when you, ex, you kind of have the quote unquote expectation that people would be looking for justice, you know, um, you see those moments, and you're like, wow, I wish it would be that way all the time. And so that when it's not, and when people really are just fundamentally having those moments where they're seeking for retributive justice, there's there's almost sometimes this judgment that comes along of like, yeah, well, disappointment, you know, right. di yeah, disappointment. Like you, you should have forgiven or you should have looked for justice and things like that. And if it's truly the higher way, then and, and we're living without the expectation, it's to live the gospel of Jesus Christ at all times, 
use words when necessary, but get rid of all of the expectations that we have of people to do any one thing. Because I've right. rec- I've recognized in my life it is far, far more persuasive and far less manipulative to say it's been my experience that by following this road, you will have greater peace in your life. And then letting it be that, letting it be whatever it's going to be without expectation and without any kind of assertion that this is the way it should be. Because once we enter into that way of being and that way of thinking, it's been my experience that it devolves into spiritual and moral manipulation more than it is persuasion. Right. So there's those situations like, you know, it's almost hypocritical the way that we've approached it, for instance, in this recent uh, movement with with social justice and uh, anti-police brutality, Black Lives Matter thing is, we're, you know, we're saying to that community, hey, uh, be Christians, be be forgiving, be long-suffering, patient. You know, you, you, you can't go and uh, protest and riot and stuff like this. And that's not the Christian way. Well, it's, it's, it's comes across as hypocritical to me, um, to lecture another individual or group about how to be Christians without also addressing the, the complaint or, you know, the issue they're bringing up, or at least listening to that and acknowledging it. And, and so I, I agree completely. You just have, you can't enter that with judgment as, as much as I'd like to see things go a different direction um, with, with the demonstrations and whatnot, as much as I would love to see what was envisioned by this Portland pastor of people coming to the table and discussing um, their, their objectives and aims and desires. It's not for me to, you know, go and lecture them on what they should or shouldn't do. Um, you, You can point the way and say, man, it would be ideal for that. But, yeah, I agree. You can't, it's not for me to lecture them. Absolutely. Well, Riley, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think we should have another one about peace. <laughs> There's so much more to say. There's so, so much, much more to say and, and just to keep on going. But for, for time's sake, um, I think we should uh, reapproach the situation where we do this again. There's a couple topics I have uh, in mind and heart to be able to approach in the next few episodes and I know that you do as well and it's it's just fantastic because each one of these episodes has really come up between episodes just from life experiences that we've had like like something comes up in our lives and we're like oh yeah that lands for me and then it seems to be like well let's talk about that and so it's always fresh it's new on our minds it's something that we're experiencing and as we said from the beginning we're by no means any experts in anything that we're talking about but these are just things that are happening in our own lives that we just bring up and like, yeah, this was something I was really thinking about that touched me recently. Let's go with that. And and it seems to be that the other person is like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do that. So, well, let me do this. Maybe uh, it, this is a this is a episode about peace. I'm I'm going to leave with this thought. It's more of a it's more of a question and then an int- uh, not an introduction an invitation. Sorry. Uh, so the question would be, what must we or can we sacrifice to have even momentary peace? We talked earlier about just giving up 10 seconds to breathe or a minute to read a scripture or five minutes to you know, exercise a contemplative prayer or something like that. Let me ask the listenership, you know, what, what must you or can you sacrifice in your life to have peace? And lasting peace may not be 100% realistic, 
at this moment. I understand that. I've been there. But can you have momentary peace? Can you connect for even a moment with the peace that Christ leaves us, that he said he left us? Can we connect with that? And so the invitation would be try something maybe you're uncomfortable with. And, and for a lot of people, that's a very basic, quiet meditation where your senses are heightened to an awareness of phenomenon that you're not used to because it's so still and it's so quiet. Everyone's got a closet or everyone can get outdoors and, and find a quiet place. You know, that's, that's a possibility for, I think, everybody. Go to that place and just spend a couple minutes and see what the effect is for you. I know that for me, just doing that very simple exercise has been pretty life-changing. It gives you attention, to, uh, it gives you an opportunity to pay attention to whisperings of the spirit, things that I haven't paid attention to before, such as you know the sound or feeling or sensation of my own heartbeat or breathing, some of the natural environmental sensations, sounds, feelings, temperatures that are around me environmentally and start to just absorb all of that stuff as an expression of God's love for us and his desire for us to have peace. That would be my invitation is just sacrifice a couple minutes to experience something that is really nice, really peaceful. I love it. Well, awesome. Well, until next time we get together, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Riley Risto. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.